Let's hear God's word together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. For God so loved the world that... He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here's our scripture that we're going to preach out of this morning. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. We love God's word here. If you're attending Harvest Essentials class, you can let yourself out and get ahead to those double doors to your left, to my right. You can follow Jasper Sweeney. Now prepare your hearts for God's word this morning.
had the privilege this morning to sing next to a pretty awesome nine, almost 10 year old. And I'm already destroyed. Um, and then hearing the word of God about darkness and then light, recognizing that I deserve nothing that I have. So <laughs> emotional place to start. I'm going to pray. And uh, one of the prayers would be that God would transfer me over so that I can actually do this. Um, so join with me in praying, Heavenly Father, you're so good. And you have taken us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into your kingdom, the kingdom of light. And I praise you for that. We need you so much, God. Not simply to do that transferring, but then to keep us and sustain us. I pray for each heart that's here this morning. I pray that you would give me a love for these people uh, that matches uh, the love that you have for them. That I would preach truth to them and do so in love. And that you would be proclaimed. That the authority of your word would be preached and proclaimed without apology. So there's a somberness and a weight when we preach your word, God. But there's also excitement. Because it's your word. It's who you are. And you are not one thing alone. You are, you are God. You are, you are one. As you said of yourself in Deuteronomy 6. But there are so many aspects of you. And I pray that you would awaken our hearts to understand those things this morning by your spirit. So we always pray when we pray in this church in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So I was preparing for this sermon this week and trying to think of a great introduction. Um, and I don't know that I came up with one. But I did get to this idea of magic. So when we talk about magic, we're not really talking about magic like in the actual, like the, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter sense, where these metaphysical things are happening. When we talk about magic, we're really talking about illusions. So there's different levels of illusions. There's like the crazy slash scary uncle type of illusion right? Where he's like, hey, look at my thumb, I'm pulling it off. So that deceives maybe like three-year-old level magic, where the three-year-old is like, how does his thumb do that? It floats away from his body and reconnects. But then you kind of get into more magic or, or more convincing illusions. So someone like David Copperfield, or what's the guy's name? David Blaine. I will stay in an ice thing for a week or whatever. And that's kind of like this next level of magic. And the weird thing about that magic or illusion is that people go pay to be deceived in it. So they're paying money. If you're in Vegas, it's, you know, like 80 bucks or whatever to sit there for two hours to see these illusions. And you want to be deceived. You're paying for someone to, like, entertain you in deception. And then beyond that, there's this other level of street magicians. Now, to me, who's kind of like a closet magic appreciator, illusion appreciator, the street music, uh, magicians, rather, that's where it's at. Because you're right next to the people, and you're deceiving them right in front of them. It's interesting as we go into the passage, so Ephesians 5, into verse 6. And it's kind of, we're meshing with where Charles left off a couple weeks ago. And leaving a couple weeks ago, there was a lot of weight in this room as we went out. Because a recognition of what God feels and does about sin. But we're warned in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. So as we hear that, let no one deceive you with empty words, we're, we're, we're thinking, okay, there's the potential that we could be deceived. That, that potential exists. There's, there's no one in this room who does not have the potential in them to be deceived. And that's why the scriptures warn us, let no one deceive you, because that potential exists. We are like the people in some regards going to see magic. And we must be discerning because people are trying to deceive us. And they deceive us with empty words. If you have a cup and it's filled with nothing and you pour it on someone's head, nothing happens. Those words are empty promises. So the warning as we start is don't be deceived about God's hatred of sin. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things. So as we read verses 3, yeah, 3 through 5 that Charles preached. Don't be deceived about those things, for it's because of those things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Great spring break message, Bjorn. The wrath of God, all right. Not only do we have to be envious of those in Florida and the Gulf Coast, now you're talking about the wrath of God again. 
But I'm beholden to the word of God. I'm preaching what the word of God says. Um, and if you don't like that, God will change your heart or you'll eventually leave from that. So I'm okay with where I am in this. Don't be deceived about God's hatred of sin. Don't be deceived about God's wrath. God's wrath is God's furious, burning, righteous hatred of sin. This is one definition. If you read through commentaries or theologians or um, other people, trustworthy sources, there could be other definitions for, for, for wrath. But this is our definition this morning. God's furious burning, righteous hatred of sin. And these things come out of who God is, God's character. So it doesn't spring up out of nowhere, but it comes out of the fact that God is holy. God is set apart. God is different. God is righteous. And God is pure. When we hear wrath, or fury, or anger, we're tempted to think of things in terms of humanness. So perhaps your parents, when you were growing up, perhaps you had a father or a mother who couldn't control their anger. And your lens for anger is viewed through a bad thing that happened to you in the past. So when you hear anger, you think of someone who's out of control. That, that's not burning righteous hatred of sin. That was just someone who was sinning in anger. Don't be deceived about God's hatred of sin. It's fixed. He hates sin. It doesn't fluctuate. It's not like sometimes he's angry at it and sometimes he's not. He's always furious about it. He always burns with anger about it. And his wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. Now, if you turn back to chapter 2 with me, please. Should be one page flip. If you've got like the primo study Bible, maybe two page flips back. Um, but God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. I'm going to start looking in verse two. Well, verse one. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So do you remember a few months ago, chapter two? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, what does it say there? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So sons of disobedience are children of wrath, and that's everybody apart from God. That is everyone apart from God. And we see this in Romans 1.18. We're going to have a bunch of scriptures that are up on the screen. Um, you can write the references that you can see there. Because all of God's word speaks together about this. So it's not like we're pulling ideas out. This is the fullness of God's word. For the wrath of God is re revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And whoever believes, so John 3.36 is another reference you can see on the screen there. At the bottom, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's interesting and important to note the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus didn't come uh, to, to condemn the world. I think Mike read that this morning. The world was already condemned. The wrath of God remained on the world because of sin. God hates sin. It's burning He's furious about it, but it's a righteous hatred and anger at sin. That's the wrath of God. Now, there's three, I would say, common empty words or sets of deception that happen in regards to God's wrath in the church. Three common ways people in the church are deceived about God's wrath. The first one is, is this. People just ignore it. So this is kind of like the version, I remember playing hide-and-seek. Remember this, Hunter? We would play hide-and-seek, me, you, and Brock. And when Brock is like two years old, he thinks that hide-and-seek is you can put your head under a blanket. So he's like this, his head's under a blanket, but his butt's sticking out like this. And you walk by, and he thinks he's hiding. And he, he's basically thinking this, if I can't see him, he can't see me. 
And some Christians do that in the church. So the fullness of God's word, when you read scripture, if you read it cover to cover, you could not escape the idea that God is furious about sin. He's angry at sin, and it's driven by his character and righteousness. But some people just don't talk about it. So there's many churches where you'll go and never hear this. And it kind of goes along with the second thing that people do. They de-emphasize it. So they would look at something like, we would say, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And they would diminish or de-emphasize God's wrath. And they basically say, well, yeah, God's wrath or anger at sin um, exists. But really, what God is doing is, is kind of saying, well, my love is greater than my righteousness and my holiness and my purity. And that's not what the gospel says. That would be an incomplete gospel, a false gospel to say that, that there is no payment for sin and on the cross, uh, God's love won over his righteousness. The awesome thing about the gospel is that both God's righteousness and God's love were fulfilled on the cross. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. So some people kind of de-emphasize it and then other people redefine it. Now this one is tricky. Like this would be like street magician level kind of stuff, Right? So where someone is basically saying, I'm going to twist things around. So they're not going to ignore it. They're not going to really de-emphasize it per se. They're going to redefine it. So people will agree that God hates sin. But then they'll deny that he demands a penalty for sin. And a great question when you face the redefinition of God's wrath or someone trying to mess with that, a great question would be for you, What happened on the cross? So think about what happened with Christ on the cross. Was Christ merely setting an example for the believer of obedience? Yes, Christ was setting an example for the believer of obedience to the Father. But that's not all Christ was doing. Some people would say, well, he he had to die in order to demonstrate victory over sin. That's true as well. But you cannot deny in the reading of Scripture that ultimately a huge portion of what Christ was doing on the cross was being a propitiation. He was paying the penalty of sin. So on the cross, the wrath of the Father came upon the Son. This really happened. And you cannot read the the fullness of God's word and deny that. So there's a few scriptures that you can see up there that you can write down. I'm just going to read portions of them. So in Romans 3, Christ Jesus, it's talking about, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to, verse 26 now, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God dealt with sin on the cross and it was sin that hadn't been dealt with and then it was on the cross. Another reference would be Galatians 3.13, and it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. So Jesus became the curse on the cross. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Many of you know this, and it's awesome that you do. For our sake, he made him to be sin. So this is in reference to Christ. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So don't let people trick you about the reality of sin and that sin demands a penalty. And ultimately, this is really what people are deceiving you about when they ignore God's wrath. They're deceiving you about who God is, his very nature. Because they would say, it doesn't matter to God that there's sin, and he's not going to do anything about it. He's simply going to ignore it. Therefore, so now we're into verse 7, if you look in, in the Bible. So based on that... Don't become partners with them. So don't partner with sinners. Two ideas here in partnership. The first one is that Greek word. So Paul was writing in Koine, ancient Greek. That word means literally um, someone who partakes together in something with someone. So don't be someone who takes part in, who partakes of sin with sinners. That's really practical. Because basically what that is, is don't, don't sin with sinners. Don't be a sinner. Don't partake in sin. But another aspect of that is someone who is joined together with someone. So when it says, don't become partners with sinners, the idea is don't be joined together with the sons of disobedience. And there's two scriptures that uh, I think really highlight this well. The first one is 1 Corinthians 6, 
I think we have verse 15 up there. Here's the key idea in why you should not be joined together with the sons of disobedience. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ. So in, in the context of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's writing about sexual immorality. Remember how Charles preached about that in verse 2? Sexual immorality, all uh, impurity, covetousness. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's writing to the church in Corinth about sexual immorality. And he's saying, you've been joined together with Christ. So don't join yourself. I think at the end of verse 15, it talks about don't join yourself then together with a prostitute. And basically it's saying, you've, you've been joined with Christ. This has happened to you. Don't drag Christ into your mess because you're joined with Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. You're members of his body. Don't drag the church and don't drag Christ into your sin. And then 2 Corinthians 6, so it's easy to remember because whether you go 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you're going to hit it no matter what. 1st Corinthians 6 or 2nd Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What Paul wants people to understand is there is something different about you that Christ has done to you. You've been transformed. And because of that transformation, there's a difference. So righteousness over here and then lawlessness over here. You're, you're righteousness. You're not lawlessness. Fellowship light over here. Fellowship with darkness over here. What accord with, does Christ have with the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Look at verse 8, the start of verse 8 on this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Don't become partners with the sons of disobedience because you are not that way anymore. God has changed you. So remember out of that that the Lord has turned you into light. The Lord has turned you into light. So we're going to park on verse uh, 8, the start of it for a while. For at one time... You are darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Just the start of it. So things to notice. Let's look at the words together. For at one time, so a point in time, for at one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. So a point in time. So something happened to you at a point in time, and that's when you, when you placed your faith in Christ. So there's a, a point in time that something happened. Uh, it's not so much this thing that's flowing, but you were one way, and now you are this way. And that goes with the verb. At one time, it says, uh, verse 8, you were darkness. So the verb is to be. It's a great verb. All over the place, constant usage, to be. Think about the idea of being. You could say, I am a guy. So that, that says something about me. Um, you could say, what's something else about me? I am average height. But it's talking about existence. At one time, you were darkness. So the verb there matches up with this idea of um, that there's not a modifier. So it's not saying one time you were in darkness. We know that that's true from Scripture, right? That we were in darkness. But Paul is writing here, there's no modifier. There's no in darkness or from darkness or surrounded by darkness. All those things are true. What Paul is writing to the church is, you were darkness. He's talking about their, their nature. They were by very nature children of wrath and darkness. And it's the starkest representation of our, our nature and our character. We were this way. It was our condition. If you look across all of Scripture at the idea of darkness, you're always going to find, well, 99.9% .9 of the time, you're going to find negative ideas. Blindness. So you were blind. There's, there's stumbling and uncertainty. You stumbled. You were uncertain. You didn't know where you're going. In the books of wisdom, so in Job and Proverbs, 
and psalm. It talks about a lot in regards to light being wisdom. And then the opposite of wisdom is unrighteousness and, and foolishness and wickedness. Hidden sin is darkness. Suffering and mourning. Why do people wear black clothes when they're in mourning? Because it represents the darkness of mourning. And then consistently throughout the word of God, there's this idea of darkness being associated with judgment, punishment, and death. Think about when when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, or right before they were. So one of the last things that happened before Passover is that Plagues were put on the Egyptian people. So the Pharaoh, the leader of the um, Egyptian people, wouldn't repent. He'd constantly reject and buck up against what God wanted. There were a bunch of plagues, frogs, flies, all these kinds of things. And then this, this ninth plague, for three days there was darkness on everyone in Egypt. But, but none of the Israelites. So utter darkness. And it drove them bonkers. And then fast forward to a time that is ahead of now. So looking back at Egypt, the Egyptians faced this plague of darkness. And then look forward, there will come a time in the, in the judgment of the world when the wrath of God will be poured out on the world. And these angels will have the, these bowls of wrath, God's wrath. And the, the fifth bowl, it's in Revelation 16 if you want to read about it. The fifth bowl of God's wrath is that darkness will come on the earth. And the idea isn't, isn't to focus so much on all these things that were happening, but just to recognize that darkness is an awful thing. And you were that apart from God. So it's not just a, a circumstance that you were in. It was a condition and the, like the nature of your heart. But the awesome part is that you are no longer in darkness. You are no longer darkness. Let's look at verse 8 again. I was in verse, uh, chapter 2, and that didn't make sense to me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So in the Lord, you aren't darkness anymore. And I get uh, the, the nature of how we preach in West Michigan, especially in our church, but that's one of those points where it's like, yeah, boy, that's awesome. You were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And I get it. We want to have our hands folded and sit quietly and listen to the guy in his untucked black shirt preaching at us. But this is an awesome thing because this is not just a change of circumstances. This is a complete transformation of who you are, your existence, who you are in Christ Jesus, because God did something to you. And now you are all these things. You are light in the Lord. You have sight and awareness and visibility. These things are yours in Christ Jesus. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In Christ Jesus, I know where I'm going, both the next step that I take and for eternity. That's a pretty awesome thing. In Christ Jesus, in the light of the Lord, I have guidance and wisdom. There's hope in the future, which no one else can have apart from Jesus. There's belief and there's transformation in my life. There's protection And there's goodness and righteousness and truth. All these things are in Christ Jesus because ultimately truth is light and truth is life. And how did this happen? In the Lord. Because Jesus did something, we possess these things and we are these things. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that's because Jesus says... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has made us into light. Not just in light. We are in his light. But Jesus has made us light because Jesus is light. We're in him and he's in us. So we are light. So when you look at the end of verse 8 and then into verse 9, God is simply telling us to, to be, to walk as he's made us to be. He's not asking you to do in himself, anything that he hasn't equipped you and made you to be. You have the power to walk as children of light, as we look into um, verse 8 there, because he has made you a child of light. He's declared that to be. You were a son of disobedience and a child of wrath. Now you're a child of light. If you look at verse 1, go back in chapter 5 and look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. So then at the end of verse 8, walk as children of light. 
You're walking. God is calling you to walk, calling you to walk as someone that you already are, and he's declared you to be. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, I don't know why Paul did this. Maybe it was a, a scribe doing this. Maybe he spoke this way. But verse 9 in the middle there is like this parenthetical idea. And maybe you're, if you look in your Bible, maybe your Bible does translate it that way to put the parentheses around it. But it's this idea about light. But, but we're going to do some of this. We're going to take that and put it at the end, um, at the end of verse, after verse uh, 9. So switch things around. And we're not messing with Scripture. So if this is on YouTube, this isn't a heretical church. We're not changing Scripture around. We're trying to understand what the Word of God says. So walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to God. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to God. How how do you do that? Let's look at Romans 12 too. I think that's one we have up on the screen. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Try to discern what is pleasing to God. The word there, testing, or try to discern, that phrase is translated, try to discern, test. It's basically like uh, scrutinizing, like looking at carefully. The idea is that everything that you do, you're supposed to scrutinize it and look at it very carefully to determine what? If it's pleasing to the Lord. And I think in the ESV it says, and try to discern, in verse, um, what would that be, verse 8? No, verse 10, rather. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Literally, the verb there is kind of more like always trying to discern. This is something that we're always doing. It's not as, as much something that we specifically do, uh, but also like part of everything that we're doing. Always trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So it's not trying when you read and try to discern. Maybe you think like, well, it's, it's, like a, it's like a maybe I do, maybe I don't kind of thing. Or maybe I can do it or maybe I can't kind of thing. But it's more an idea of you're always trying to do this. It's always happening, always testing what's pleasing the Lord. And so much of walking in the light is simply always doing it, never giving up. So let's say this morning you had a rough morning, right? And you recognize I wasn't walking as a child of light. Well, you know what the awesome thing is? You can just start doing that right now in Christ Jesus. You don't, you don't have to be like, oh, man. All you have to do is turn away from that and then keep doing it. Never giving up, persevering is a great part of walking in the light. And it's also part of the evidence of our salvation that we keep doing it. The best evidence of your salvation is like, do something like this. So we live in this sort of, or many of us do, live in this kind of self-imposed tyranny of busyness. There's always something to do, and we can never stop from it. But let's, let's try to find ways to take a step back from that in the midst of our lives, recognizing that sometimes a busy life is a good life if you're doing things for the Lord. Take a step back from the busyness that you've put on your life because of the choices you make and, and decide in all those things Hey, is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this pleasing to the Lord? And it's not a crippling thing. God gives us freedom in Christ Jesus. So if you're trying to decide, should I have cream of wheat or grits or oatmeal this morning? You know what? I'll say this with confidence. God's fine with whatever choice you make. But in terms of the decisions that you make that directly impact everything about who you are in your life and walking as light in Christ Jesus... Decide on those things based on what's pleasing to the Lord. And that's easy for a guy up here to say, hey, make the choice that's pleasing to the Lord. That's hard work. And the way you do it is just never giving up on it. Never give up on determining what's well-pleasing to the Lord. Because it doesn't, when Paul wrote it, he didn't just say, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The word there is well-pleasing. Like if you asked... uh, Some people, they might say, it's super duper pleasing to the Lord. (laughs) Or if you asked um, my son Brock, my younger son, like when you're in, what is he, in first grade, Hunter? I knew that. He's in first grade, and their their way they expand on everything is just to put very in front of it. 
So there's hungry, right? And then if you wait like two minutes, there's very hungry. If you wait three minutes, very, very, very hungry. And then by the time you'd wait five or ten minutes, he's very, 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 very hungry. Um, And it's only fulfilled by eating chocolate, Um, nothing that might be healthy. (laughs) But we're trying to discern, trying to test, looking at everything and scrutinizing, is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this super duper pleasing to the Lord? What does super duper look like? Uh, March Madness, anyone partaking of March Madness? Any joint partakers in watching March Madness? Anyone not like raising their hand? See, that's a tough one. If you don't like raising your hand, then you're like, oh, I want to express how much I hate this, but then I would be doing it. He's got me trapped. So anyway, (laughs) March Madness, basketball. An awesome experience I had this past winter. I was an assistant coach on Hunter's basketball team. And they did this awesome thing. They started slow, remember this, Hunter? But then five of their last six games, they won. So they finished even, 500 on the season. I was so proud. But you know what made me the most proud? Hunter did some scoring. It was awesome to watch him make baskets. They had some great scores on their team, some great ball handlers. The thing that Coach Scott and I were most proud of Hunter wasn't necessarily the scoring or the big flashy things. It was when you'd see a kid make a super fundamental play. And I know as a preacher, we're never supposed to use sports analogies because they're divisive or something. But that's the only thing I understand, sports and food. Um, So I watch Hunter... And in practice, we go over this. When someone comes across the lane, who's a baller in here? What do you do? You put a body on them. You don't let someone just walk across the lane, get the ball, turn around, and dunk it. Well, none of those kids could do that at this point. But you have to put a body on someone. And then when they shoot the ball, what do you do? You don't just stand there and look at the ball or play with your pockets and your shorts, although some fourth graders do that. You turn around and you put a body on the guy to box him out so he cannot get the ball. And the most awesome plays are those fundamental plays. And if you watch it in March Madness, yes, coaches get excited about scoring, right? But what they're most excited about is when a guy takes a charge, so gets in front of someone and gives up their body for something. Or when they put a body on someone coming across the lane. And I remember, I think it was the last or second to last game, Hunter. This guy came across the lane and you were like, boom! And I'm like, that is so awesome. And I was so excited. And I got up and I'm like, he did what he was supposed to do. And it wasn't about him. It wasn't about flashiness. It wasn't about scoring points, which everyone wants to do. Everyone wants to be the point guard. Everyone wants to handle the ball. But sometimes when someone comes across the lane, you have to put a body on them. And when the ball goes up, you have to box someone out and prevent them from getting the ball. And it was so awesome to watch. And you know what, Hunter? When you did that, I was well pleased. I got up and I was excited. And in the same fashion that I got excited, though I'm a broken and strange and weird human being, in some fashion, God is well-pleased when we do the basics for him. When we block someone from going into sin. When we grab someone and say, watch out, dude. When we know that someone needs help or care in the hospital. And we go. We don't have to ask permission to do it. We can just do it. Because we're walking as children of the light. Live a transformed life. Now here's the question. How do you know it's pleasing to the Lord? You can't just use the Sunday school answer. You can't say, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is well-pleasing to the Lord. So you've got to go to the second Sunday school answer. It's in the Bible. Look at verse 9 that we, we kind of pass over. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Anything that you see that's good and right and true, that's coming out of light. There's kind of this circular aspect to it as well, is goodness and righteousness and truth produce light. So goodness, what is that? Goodness, there's a bunch of different words for goodness in the New Testament. But this word... And I wish our language was this expressive because it's awesome when you can study the word of God and you realize, I think I get what he actually meant here. And it's not what I always thought about it. So this form of goodness, this word that Paul used in writing to the church of Ephesus is about uh, kindness, like this disposition or in our hearts of kindness and, and love towards people. So the product of light, the product of walking in Christ, is something about us, our disposition, uh, maybe you'd say our attitude, and it's, it's a goodness, it's a kindness. Walking as children of light means 
that people should want to be around us. And then with that goodness, that kindness, there's also this idea of justice, righteousness. The fruit of light is found in righteousness. And that's doing the right things. And then true. The fruit of light is found in all that is true. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 17, 17, it's this awesome uh, prayer that the Lord is praying. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows the mission that God has for him. And he prays this, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The way that we know what's good and right and true is the word of God, the revealed word of God in the Bible. And that's how we know. So when we're trying to discern what is well-pleasing to the Lord, what we're trying to do is take this, not these pages or this um, leather cover, but we're trying to take what God has said and revealed to us and apply it to everything in our lives. That's what trying to discern what is well-pleasing to the Lord. Because if it matches up with this consistently in every way, that's going to be well-pleasing to the Lord. So I'm not going to take this and smash you over the head with it and say, you need to read this every day. I'm just going to say, you are, you'll have a very difficult time living a life that is filled with discernment about what is well-pleasing to the Lord if you don't know what this says in fullness. The awesome part is God wants you to do it. And when you put in the effort to do it, he blesses you in that in many amazing ways. Try to discern what is well-pleasing to the Lord. On the flip side of that, if you look at verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is life. Paul is writing to the church here, don't take part in sin, but shine the light on it. So as we think about what does light produce, the the fruit of light is found in everything that's good and right and true. Now he's flipping it and saying, "What what what does the works of darkness produce? None of those things. They're unfruitful works of darkness. And they're not only unfruitful, but they're shameful. Look at verse 12. For it's shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. So the they there is thinking back to the unbelievers, the sons of disobedience. And it's shameful even to speak about the things that they do. So the emphasis here, it, it is kind of saying, don't say naughty things. Like there is a, a component to that, just like we learned two weeks ago from verses three through five. There's a, a component of, you should not want to talk about sin and sinful things because it's shameful. But there's an emphasis here also in these things are so bad, you don't even want to talk about them. It's an emphasis on how awful sin is. It's shameful. The word there might be translated as disgraceful to even speak about them. So it's not as much about rules for speech as where's your heart in this, that you're willing to to, to kind of partake in these things by speaking about them. Don't speak about such things. For it's shameful to speak about what they do in secret. We're not supposed to take part in those things. What does it say to do? What does your Bible say? But instead, expose them. The word expose there, in this context, expose is a great translation. The word literally, like if you looked it up in a, a dictionary, it's reprove. And that doesn't, in our, we don't, I don't know, maybe it's just me and how old I am. I don't think anybody talks that way anymore. I will reprove, reprove thee. Like, what does it mean? Now, we're accustomed to a word that it's sometimes translated as rebuke, right? So as we look at 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke. The word rebuke there in 1 Timothy 5.20, it's the same word expose. So same, same idea here. To reprove. And really it means to convince with an attitude of, of correction and restoration. 
there's kind of two paths that this takes within the church. The first, I would say, is a corporate and public way to do it. And as we look at 1 Timothy 5.20, the context of 1 Timothy 5 in that section of the passage, it's about leaders of the church. So for those leaders who persist in sin, they're supposed to be publicly reproved so that all the leaders, but everybody's afraid. So it's this corporate and public thing. But that comes out of 2 Timothy 4 too. Be ready in season and out of season. So any season, all seasons, all the time. Reprove, so that's the word. Expose, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And the Bible then goes on to say in verse 3 there, because there's going to become a time, and maybe it's now and maybe it's always been, but there's a time when people won't endure sound doctrine. So we, we look at 2 Timothy 4, 2, and we're like, that's the responsibility of the preacher. But you know, when you read that passage and consider verse 3 in it, it's really saying, this is the responsibility of everybody. Because there's going to be a time when people won't endure sound doctrine. To hear the word of God in purity preached, sometimes it hurts and you have to endure it. But in, in enduring it and staying underneath the word of God and the authority of the word of God, it always bears fruit in your life. So we publicly decry sin. As a church, corporately, we should publicly decry sin. We should expose sin. We should say things like, it is wrong the manner in which abortion has killed the number of people it has in our country. We should publicly expose that sin for what it is. When there is greed that we see in our culture, covetousness, we should publicly as a church say, that's not right. That's not according to the word of God. That's wrong. Corporately and publicly. Hey, there was one thing that I thought of in, in looking at my notes this week. Our church, um, many years ago, established a relationship with the Harvest Bible Fellowship. That doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't for a couple years. But if you've been following the Chicago media, there's a lot of, if I might say, and forgive me, crap that has happened um, in regards to the, the leadership of that church. I don't want to get embroiled in that. We haven't been involved or engaged with that church uh, for what I'd consider to be a long time. But we also don't want to be associated with that kind of stuff. So we've mentioned this in the past, but we're going we're gonna to change the name of our church. I'm not going to tell it now. We wouldn't announce that on spring break. Uh, it could be like a spring break bonus. You actually came to church instead of going to Florida? You get to know what the church name is. Um, but it, we're doing that. And actually, we had started doing it, um, I think it would have been May of last year. And then some stuff happened. Um, so it kind of delayed when we were going to do that. So that's going to be something, there's more to that. To this point, you know what I've started doing? I've just started saying harvest. Where do you go to church? I go to harvest. And then there's the weirdness of like, well, which harvest? The, the medium spring lake or the faraway spring lake or the one by the gas station in the barn? I just say, the one by the barn. That's what I go to. But we're all serving God together for his glory. But we don't want to have church leadership be like that. Like those negative things that people look at. And the way that you do that is 1 Timothy 5.20. People persist in sin. You you reprove them. You rebuke them in the presence of everybody so that everyone can have the fear of the Lord in them. But here's the awesome thing about um, this passage. It's not just corporately and publicly. I think there are a a group of people who are well-intentioned But then they also view themselves as kind of like, I am the sin-exposing vigilante of the church. So they would look at sin and say, anywhere they see it, they've got like, you know, holstered up. And they're like, sin, sin, and then, and maybe, maybe in anger, right, they tend to do this, right? If there's someone that rubs them the wrong way, they would see a sin in that person, although it it kind of missed the, the log that's protruding far out of their own eye, and they're just like, boom, 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 automatic weapon, set up the tripod. (laughs) There's a group of people, their natural disposition is to do that. And you know what that, in some regards, it's awesome that God made people with a zeal for his word and to do the right thing. So I would never want to discourage anyone from looking at sin and saying, that is awful. And at the same time, don't try to be more principled than the Lord Jesus is 
in how you interact with people. So there's corporately and publicly, but there's personally and privately too. And if you look at Matthew 18, 15, see the underlined word there, tell, or phrase, tell him his fault. It's the same word that we're looking at in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Reprove him. Win him over. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What an awesome thing. That's, you can stand in the truth and go to someone who's not doing the right thing and not living the right way and gain your brother or sister. You know what that means? It means to pull them out of something bad. Like God has gifted us by his spirit to walk in the light and help him in the process. I don't know why he does it, but he's chosen for us to be part of it to help pull people out of bad things. But you can't do it if you don't expose you're not willing to say the truth. And you do that by shining the light on things. You flip a switch. What, think about this, um, to get all weird. What's darkness? So I know there's some science guys in here. Darkness is the absence of light. And that's exactly right. So when you go into a room, like my son Brock had an asthma attack yesterday morning. And I don't know if you've dealt with that as parents. Um, it's very freaky. And Brock, Brock, Brock is Brock. So everything he does is like at an extreme. So the minute he freaks out, then it's like a whole level of freaking out that you would not even imagine. So it's understandable. But he was like at the next level, like, wow, this kid needs to get to the hospital. And it's not just because I don't want to deal with him anymore. But he's freaking out. And what's the first thing you do when your kid's freaking out and it's dark? Turn the light on. And the darkness goes away. It's nowhere to be found. It's outside of where that light is. And that's how we expose sin. We we shine the light of Christ. We shine the light of Scripture on whatever it is. And if you look at verses 13 and into verse 14, it's kind of a confusing set of words. Let me read that. uh, Verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Visible. That makes sense. For anything that becomes visible is light. Paul's writing here, hey, light, when you, when you shine it on something, it shows it for what it, it really is. When you shine light on something, then you see what it really is. So in darkness, big things feels small. And then small things feel big, right? In darkness, you could have something that's just terribly ugly or dangerous, and it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't, doesn't look that way. And then in darkness, there's things that are absolutely beautiful. But you can't see them at all. But in, in the light of truth, when you shine the light of truth on something, when you expose those things, then you can see what they really are. And you can't do that apart from being in the Lord. You lack the capacity to do it. So consider this in the context of the whole passage, what we learned a couple weeks ago and that what we're talking about now. In the light of Christ, what does sexual immorality look like? All of a sudden, you can see in the light what it is. It's fake. It's not real. It's not how God intended things to be. And it's lurid. It looks bright and shiny, but you can see, wow, there's something that's not right with this. And you can see that it's demonic. It's instituted in in large part by the devil in order to to pull us away from God. In the light of Christ, you can see that about sexual immorality. You can see that about all impurity. In the darkness, you can't see impurity. You don't know if it's there or it's not. But in the light of Christ, you can see it. It's poison. It's black tar that's covering your heart and blinding your eyes. But in the light, you can see it and you can stay away from it. The same with covetousness. In the darkness, sometimes we look at covetousness and greed like, well, that's my freedom in Christ. That's a bunch of garbage. Covetousness in the light of Christ is shown to be idolatry. It's the worship of idols. And yeah, we don't look as foolish as we would say the people who back in the day bowed before things. And yet look at the use of your time and my time throughout the week. How much of that is dedicated towards accumulating things that we could do what we want with? But they're all shown, all those things to be 
I think it's in first or second Peter, waterless springs. So you go to those things and they don't fill you up. Slavery, bondage. But in the light, all that power of deception is lost. You have the ability to see it what is what it what it is for what it is and act accordingly. So based on that, therefore, look at verse 14. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The idea is, wake up, arise, and reflect the light of Christ. Therefores are awesome in Scripture. In Scripture, if you see therefore, or a for, or a so that, or a so, it's like, I need to look at this because it's telling me what to do. Or telling me why something is the case that, um, that it is. And it says, therefore, it says... Maybe if you're reading the New King James Version, which is a version I recommend for whatever that's worth to you, but it says, he says. Therefore, he says, if you look at verse 14. There's this, I don't know, as I was, I I wanted to point this out, so give me one minute to talk about it. Can Peter sound good? Talk about it for one minute? Minute and a half? All right. So I was reading all these commentaries. That's, that's, that, that's a big part of what we do to prepare for preaching at our church. We'll read, what does orthodox belief say about this, right? So we're trying to look at what other men have said about this. Um, and there's all this debate about, well, verse 14 says, it says versus he says. Is he talking about something the prophet Isaiah said? Some people say, well, it was this hymn that they sang, an early hymn. And the thing that God really led me to in understanding what is it saying there in terms of verse 14, in terms of it says or he says... It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know what matters? It says it right there. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And the reason I, I felt compelled to bring that up is we can go on all these spins and turns and debates about, well, what, what does this really say or mean? But it says it right there in front of us to do it. God is calling. Verse 14 is evangelistic. I can't say that word for some reason, so... As I say it wrong, just smile and nod like you understand what I'm saying. Verse 14 is evangelism. And the the weird thing is, as we think about evangelism, we tend to think about it as something that's necessary and important only for those who are unsaved. And it is very necessary and important for those who are unsaved. But that is a limited view of what evangelism is because evangelism is talking about good news. So there's two aspects to what Paul is writing here. The first one is, God is calling to the sinner. God is calling to the sinner. The Holy Spirit awakens the heart of the sinner. This is, this is unbelievably awesome. Because it, this is real magic. Not magic like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter stuff. This is magic like metaphysical, like God doing something that only God can do. The Holy Spirit awakens the heart of the person. Brings it back to life. That they might receive the word of God. So God does something by his spirit to the hearts of people. And their hearts are awakened. And all of a sudden they can hear. And then they can choose by the power that God has given them. His awakening to respond to Christ and say, I need you, Christ. I need to turn from my sin and walk towards you and follow you. And then in that, the rest of their life from that point forward is a reflection of Christ Jesus. It's unbelievably amazing. So this is a call from light to darkness. I see many of you out here right now and I know who you are and I know where you stand in Christ Jesus, but there's some of you who I don't. And I would say, if right now you understand that there's an awakening in your heart, that there's something that God is doing. And all of a sudden, the idea that you are a sinner and he wants to change you and there is a penalty to be paid for your sin and Jesus paid that for you. If all of a sudden you can understand that, now's the time to respond to it. Now's the day of salvation. So turn from your sin because God has awakened your heart and you can do it. And your life will never be the same from here out. It won't be the same when you live on this earth and when Christ returns and then when Christ comes back and you can live with him forever, unhindered by bodies like this one, it's going to be amazing. If you have that heart right now, if Jesus is doing that in your heart by his spirit, don't walk out of here without responding to the call of God. That's evangelism. Evangelism is this as well. For the saint, God is calling. Two more passages and then we'll be done. Three more, actually. I threw one in a bonus passage because you came on spring break. For the saint, God is calling from sleeping in death. So this is, it's going to get a little heavy here. 
But hang with it, right? You have to endure sound doctrine. So deal with some of the heaviness, and we'll get to something um, that's more encouraging coming out of this. Jesus wrote this to the church in Sardis. I know that's a lot of words up there. Um, I'll read it. But I want you to know that reference. Revelation 3, he's writing to the church in Sardis. I know your works. This is the Lord saying this to the church. Lord, may this not be our church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's a call to the church. And we could go on one of those debates about the minutia of Scripture and say, well, what does this really represent in Revelation? And what does Revelation really mean? But, but know this, church. That's a call to the church and a warning to the church that your reputation on this world means nothing before God. Absolutely nothing. Other than something that might benefit and glorify Him. So you might have the reputation based on a bumper sticker on your car of being a Christian. That is insufficient before God to be a child of light. You may have the reputation of your family. Nothing. Don't be found dead. Don't be found asleep. Do not be asleep in the light. And then Romans 13. At the end of the book of Romans or towards the end. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us not walk uh, improperly, or pardon me, let us walk properly now as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Your greatest tool as a believer is the, the light of Christ that you shine in terms of evangelism. So the sons of disobedience are not won by you being disgusted that they behave in a fashion uh, according to the sons of disobedience. They're just being who they are. That's not going to win them over if you are disgusted with that. You should be disgusted with it, but that should drive you then to shine the light of Christ into their lives. And you do that by, by not simply identifying sin, by saying, well, this is bad, but saying this is, this is the solution for that sin. So how do we respond to this? Right? There's encouragement in Christ and comfort from his love, fellowship in his spirit. There's affection and sympathy. And then there's weight that sometimes feels like, man, some parts of this sermon and maybe the one two weeks ago hit me on the back like a two by four. And I don't know what to do with it. And I, want, I just want to encourage you personally. Obviously, the application of the sermon is hate, hate sin as much as God does. When you hate something, you don't want anything to do with it. If I look at my boys, and Heather makes something to eat, right? And they're, if she cut a piece of onion that's like a millimeter and put it in their favorite food, you know what they're going to do? There's an onion in this! This is terrible! They're learning not to say that and speak to their mom that way. Um, what, what's your attitude towards sin? Are you like, most of my casserole is good? You should be like Hunter and Brock in regards to onions in the casserole. You should say, I hate this. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And you should live your life like Jesus. Everything you do, determine what's pleasing to the Lord. And shine the light of truth on sin. When you see sin, don't say nothing about it. But deal with it. You don't have to start unloading a 12-gauge of truth on someone. But expose sin. And here's the awesome thing. I can't remember which man read it this morning. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. What a privilege to be transformed and to be that light. So I would encourage you this morning, if God is convicting your heart in something, embrace the conviction. Embrace the weight. If something hurts, don't try to push it away. 
but deal with it. Expose it. Reprove that with, with the truth of God and test it. And then repent. And the awesome thing that I found about being in Christ Jesus is once you repent, you're done with it. It's so awesome. It's not like human relationships, right? When something goes wrong and there's brokenness, but then all of a, all of a sudden you deal with it, right? But then it sometimes takes years, sometimes decades to repair things. And that's not how it is with God. You can turn away from your sin and it's done with, and then you can walk forward in that. So I'm not telling you to ignore sin, but I'm saying when you deal with it and when you put that at the feet of, or on the, on the cross and say that's, that's where it was dealt with, you don't have to live in that sin anymore. And that's why we should be encouraged according to the word of God. Not because there isn't wrath, but because the wrath was put on Christ. All right, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you're so good. You're good because you're just. And we will not speak negatively about your justice in our lives or in this church. And you're righteous. You do everything good. And everything you, you do is pure. You're pure. And that means that you hate sin. And yet, you provided a way to deal with that. Not by you becoming someone who you weren't. But by fully dealing with, with sin. And pouring your wrath on someone who is perfect on the cross. But he being God was able to endure that wrath for our sake. And that was for our sake. That him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, you knew no sin. You were perfect in every way. But you became sin. God made you sin that I might become, and my brothers and sisters, you might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for who you are, God. Show us your character according to your word, and may we follow you forever. And I pray in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, who we celebrate. Amen.